Hi, I'm Lisa Henderson, your host for Daring Parenting, and we're talking to renowned Atlanta psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Pries. Our topic today is neuroplasticity, and I know it's not a normal part of our vocabulary. When I told people I was going to do this interview with you, they said, well, what is it? And I said, well, it's just what it sounds like. (laughs) Neuro, nerve, plasticity. You know, it's malleable. So uh, I know that's like a super layman's way to put it. How about giving us uh, a more educated description. Well, think of it as maybe we've discovered a principle that says that your brain will figure out a way to heal itself. Your brain will figure out, if you will help it as best you can and as best we can teach you to, uh, if you will help it, it will figure out a way to adapt and be useful in a good way. So, for example, one of the exciting discoveries has been about fasting. We've known for the longest time that skinny people live longer. Lab rats who are underfed live longer. And one of the discoveries is that when you fast and your blood glucose levels go down, your brain creates brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now, that means it's made in the brain. And BDNF. BDNF, that's right. So, so uh, that causes more connections to grow in the brain and to try to reach out and make more connections, which would lead to, for example, better memory. You might think of it as God's way of saying that if you haven't eaten for a while, he's going to improve your memory so you'll know where those grapes were that you saw hanging on that tree or where that animal pride was that maybe you can go get something to eat. Again, uh, a little oversimplified, but but that what would seem to be negative stress of not eating mm-hmm. actually has a good effect and does help the brain change. So that's neuroplasticity. So the whole idea is to try to figure out how to direct a damaged brain or a, or a troubled brain to develop in a better way over time so that you grow and change to for the better. So can we talk about some of the things that might affect a brain as far as causing mental illness? Genetics would be one. Sure. Trauma, either emotional or brain, physical brain trauma. Well, and we get to decide, in fact, we do decide what is trauma and what is good, good stress and what's bad stress. You know, Hans Selye made a point of there being eustress, E-U stress, that you have to have a certain amount of stress to actually do better. You can't just be fat, dumb, and happy and have everything go well. That You actually need a little stimulus uh, sometimes, whether it's hunger or whether it's uh, something happening in your life where you say, well, I'll, I'll never let that happen to me. And you may be angry about it, and you can look back on it as what some people would consider a traumatic experience. For you, it may be a life-turning experience where you decide, I'm not going to let that happen again, and you okay. make a change. So um, there's some almost choice, uh, I don't know if that's too simple or not, to say that you get to decide what's a good stress and what's a bad stress. But stress is a decision point, and then you direct yourself because of that from there. All right, so let's say stress, trauma you don't have a choice over uh, as a child, say physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, severe emotional abuse, taking the choice out of it. So that would affect the brain, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then traumatic brain injury, genetics, and then what about chemicals, alcohol, drugs, uh, that sort of thing? Sure. Well, alcohol and drugs, for the most part, are just going to delay development. You, you essentially have anesthetized yourself. You've taken yourself off the growth track. You've, you've gone down a dead end to just 
experience pleasure or to be out of it or to be off the natural, uh, which means you're not developing. Uh, you're just taking a vacation. So it slows down what the brain's going to do. Plus, then you have to go through all that you go through to get back to the normal, which may be withdrawal or whatever else you've, whatever else you've created that you have to then go repair. So not only do you get off the track, but you have to pay the price to come get back on the track. In trauma, we know that one of the chemicals that, have, that takes effect is cortisol. Cortisol is supposed to be a medication that helps inflammation and helps you get past injury, but too much of it, and when it's constant and all the time, then it, your body stops being sensitive to it and it stops helping and, and instead starts being over-elaborated and causing problems where you become insensitive to what could ordinarily be helpful. And again, that's that's not a clear statement of it. There, it's a chemical effect because of the trauma. So the cortisol, mm-hmm. and that can happen just from grown-up everyday stress, work stress, or whatever. If you don't handle it right, correct. So, so can we tease this apart a little bit? Let's take genetics, neuroplasticity. Is it possible to change our brain on a cellular kind of DNA level? I really don't know the answer to that. Well, <laughs> I wish I did. Doggone uh, it. But uh, somebody else may know that. Somebody who's actually doing the research as to whether or not it changes the DNA. But if you think of it as big DNA and little DNA, if we're talking about little DNA where it's just uh, an expression, as companies will say, it's in our DNA. It is one of our core values. Can you change your core values? Absolutely. Does it reflect chemically um, in your double helix in your cells? I don't know. There's some uh, indication that the stress and the presence of the cortisol may shorten DNA strands, which is one theory that says, well, okay, then because those strands are shortened, you won't live as long. And the longevity people are all about trying to make sure that you don't create the kind of stress that shortens or damages the telomeres. Those are the chromosomes on the end of the strand. If you damage those telomeres and then begin to shorten your DNA, then it's less responsive, and perhaps that's a theory of aging and uh, how you would age sooner. So that if you can preserve your DNA uh, with good health, then you would think, that you have changed your DNA in that effect, that you've, you've, not, you've, you've avoided damaging it anymore. Okay, so that's the genetic piece. Then the trauma, uh, and let's talk more emotional, mental trauma as a child, how that changes the brain. Can that be, I don't want to say completely reversed, but maybe the neuroplasticity could come into play with meditation prayer, psychotherapy, medication? Well, in the best case scenario, a trauma doesn't become permanent. It doesn't become a memory that you're so obsessed with that you can't get on with your life. You know it's bad. You know it caused damage. You know it was awful. All of those things. But you just decide, but it's over and I'm moving on. And if anything, I'm going to use what I learned to be more sensitive or hypersensitive Uh, and you become a more compassionate person. If you can use it to help your own growth and development because you decided to change your core values uh, (laughs) and become the person that you you want that that can help uh, other people, then who's to say it was a bad thing except the badness of itself could have produced a good outcome. 
uh, in a lifetime. So it all is about how you handle it, how severe it was, how stuck you get on it. In the first readings I did about neuroplasticity, I think it was Norman Doidge's book, D-O-I-D-G-E, The Way the Brain Heals or How the Brain Heals Itself, whatever the title is. The first example was on chronic pain. And the best, that's an excellent example. If you focus on your pain, the brain gets the message, we want to know about pain, so it, would, it then assigns more neurons to pay attention to pain because that's what you're telling the brain is important to you. So then, of course, the next time you have a pain, it's worse because you've got more neurons focused on your pain. Well, then you think of it even more. Before you know it, you've become a chronic pain patient. Discovery was that if you, when you have a, pang of pain, you focus on something else. You tell your brain, I'm not interested in that. I don't care about that. I don't want that to influence me or change what I'm doing. I want to do something else right now. So you go play the piano, do a crossword puzzle, sing, take a walk, who knows. But you don't focus on your pain. Then over a period of four to six to eight weeks, however long for every every different person, your pain gets better. And the testimonial in the book was this, and you need to read the book, it's a, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. The testimonial was that after six weeks, uh, the man then lowered his, uh, and he was a doctor, he lowered his pain medication successfully. Then, of course, he had more pain, but he continued to focus on not pain and something else. And before you know it, he lowered his medication again. Well, he worked his way off all of his pain medications and is essentially pain-free. Now, he has to continue to support his neuroplastic response. He has to continue to not respond to pain by focusing on the pain. But as long as he does that, his testimonial was that he has no pain or no, no pain that's disabling. So that's a perfect example of being able to use your mind to change your brain. Yes. And then with traumatic brain injury, from some of what I've read, there there is some adaptation. There is some ability to recover from that. Uh, for In ways that we don't entirely know, the brain will use brain cells that are had been used for something else to help compensate If a brain area was damaged by a stroke, then if you continue to try to move the area of your body affected by the stroke, the brain figures other neurons to apply to that. And it it becomes a different way for you to make your arm move, but you figure out a way to make your arm move. Another example that, and I've searched for the reference and I can't find it. I'll have to look it up and get it to you later. But I think the man's name was John Piper. He was from South Africa and he had Parkinson's disease. And he just said, I refuse to do this. I'm not going to accept this. And he set out, because he was pretty much of an exercise guy anyway, but he set out to move without having a tremor and to not stumble and to not have what we call a festinating grade. He would make himself move properly, and he did it very slowly at first, and then built up his speed. And if he focused and concentrated on it, he was indeed successful and was able to overcome his Parkinson's disease, which had been documented and properly diagnosed, but he worked his way off almost, if not all, his medications. But he did this with the force of will and changing how he moved. He literally would think through a slow motion step, 
how he'd pick up his foot, move it forward, set down the heel. Then he had it divided. If you read the book, he's got it all divided up. And so instead of doing it naturally, he was doing it artificially. But he then practiced until he could overcome the effects of his Parkinsonism. So instead of giving into the natural uh, way that his body was starting to move because of the Parkinson's, he went back to the way he remembered his body should move? Yes, Okay. Right. and just refused to accept it. Okay, now, and this is kind of curious because Parkinson's is partially caused by lack of dopamine, right? Right. Uh, and so, so it, what? It, how did that work? dopamine in the wrong places and, and damaged cells so that they don't produce dopamine the way that they should? Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, multiple sclerosis. These are all, you know, brain damaging diseases that can seem to be altered by how we change things. One of the ways of being exercise and how we think. Also, your diet. Terry Wall is a medical doctor in Iowa. And you may have uh, come across our TED Talk for minding your mitochondria. (laughs) Uh, But she was in a wheelchair. She was almost totally disabled. And through her own research and self-experimentation, discovered that if she changed her diet to a very non-inflammatory diet, a lot of kale, um, (laughs) then um, uh, she is now standing, speaking, talking, walking, teaching again in the medical center and she's not recovered. She still has multiple sclerosis, but she is not disabled. So we've discovered that what you eat affects what your nerves do as well, but that mentally she had to apply herself. She wasn't going to accept it. She was going to find a way out of it, and she did the research and then did the changes that made the difference. You've been listening to Daring Parenting. I'm your host, Lisa Henderson. If you want to know more, you can go to Daring parenting.com. Our guest today has been renowned Atlanta psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Prees, one of my favorite guests. He's knowledgeable about so many things, and today we've been talking about neuroplasticity, how the brain can change. In our next segment, we'll be talking about ADHD. Can it be treated without medication, and what changes are possible with just brain changes alone? That's next on Daring Parenting, and as I said, for further information, you can always go to our website, daringparenting.com.